All opinions expressed by the program participants are their own and do not reflect those of Blue Line Futures LLC or their affiliates. The content is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as trading advice. Futures trading involves a substantial risk of loss and may not be suitable for all investors. Therefore, carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for your financial condition. Hi, welcome to Macro Corner presented by Blue Line Futures. I'm your host, Paul Wankmuller. Wanted to let you know that we do have a chart book that is attached to the podcast. It's available in the description of the podcast, bluelinefutures.com, as well as attached to the email sent to clients every Sunday. Not a client? Reach out to info at bluelinefutures.com for a free trial. This is episode four, and my guest of the week is Giannis Mindall. Welcome to the show, Giannis. Hey, Paul. Thanks so much for having me back on. I think we got a ton of ground to cover today and lots of oh, data yeah. and I think two really interesting topics. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, you know, we, we've seen a lot of things happen in the past, in the past week where, you know, are things shifting? Are we seeing uh, the, the Fed's actions start to make an impact on commodities and inflation or is this just a pause in the commodity super cycle? That is ultimately the question that we are trying to answer here today with this <laughs> podcast uh, episode and also the writing we put out uh, yesterday it was. So is this just a temporary sell-off into month and quarter end, or are we going to see a continuation of this uh, uh, really uh, super inflation of yeah. commodities? Yeah. yeah. So we, um, we're going to go slide by slide. Let's start off with slide three. And this is really interesting to me. And, and thank you for, for, for showing us and, and especially our listeners. We're talking about fertilizer prices. So what, what does that mean in the commodity story? Or, and what does that mean uh, for the consumer? So really, uh, fertilizer prices have been one of the things that have been in the spotlight because first you need a lot of natural gas to produce those fertilizers in the first place. So as okay. the price of natural gas has gone up, a lot of worries have really been around, the, is it economically viable to continue producing fertilizers? And as a result, those prices have adjusted upwards. So we see that ammonium nitrate, potash, and urea, all mm -hmm. those prices have really risen uh, by hundreds of percent leading into what was what still is the invasion of Ukraine. So now yeah. we have, however, seen a not unsubstantial disinflation of those prices. And the conversation ultimately shifts towards, are we going to see a rollover in consumer prices? Because the thing that we're interested in is not really or the spot prices deflating, but are those is that deflation ultimately going to show up uh, when it comes to people going to the grocery store. And the reality is that that disinflation that we see in current prices is ultimately going to take time to end up with the consumer. So I think it's going to be it's going to be one chart that will continue to watch. But we should not put a lot of emphasis on this current disinflation just because it takes time to grow food to process the food and ultimately going to se uh, sell that food to consumers. So sure. I think uh, on your trips to the grocery store, you will have <laughs> to wait to see prices deflate 
in a substantial manner. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's the thing about, you know, um, you know, a lot of people don't don't know there are there are different crop cycles. You know, they are harvested at different times of the year based on where you are in the world. And also, you know, how much does it cost to ship those crops? You know, if you're an exporter or, you know, if you are, you know, even an importer. But yeah, I mean, th those are all really important things to to take note. And I, I, I did not know it took that much natural gas to um, in, in respect with, you know, the in producing fertilizers. That's, yeah. That's and speaking thing. to that idea of it depends on where you are, what location you are in. Uh, not only the grain cycle, but also do you have access to the energy that you need to produce those fertilizers? So right. the entire idea that we've sort of been uh, touting was, are we going to live in a more fractured world? And are we moving from efficiency upon efficiency as a result of globalization to a place where we live through globalization or deglobalization and therefore access to commodities is going to be much more fractured and it's not going to be as clear as it used to be when it comes to having access to those uh, necessities to produce food, to produce all sorts of outputs that the consumer ultimately uh, puts in the stomach. Right. Maybe. Yeah. You know, going back to that, it's, you know, maybe we don't need, you know, all, all these different types of fruits and vegetables. Maybe we'll just, you know, cut a couple of them off from the supermarket and that would make maybe that would bring prices down a little bit for the other fruits and vegetables you know yeah i, I think that we're ultimately shifting towards a world where we'll have to deal with trade-offs and i think right. that we have at large benefited from a movement towards more efficiencies as i've said and you know we've we've really enjoyed those benefits but maybe they are reversing to an extent at least Sure, sure. So, I mean, and going back to, you know, what we spoke about last week with, you know, the Fed reducing liquidity, uh, this is slide four, and it also relates to slide five and six, the lead lag uh, relationship between China and the activity, the emerging activity with recessionary, recessionary conditions. Um, let, let's talk about that a little bit, because I, I do see that we have copper on there, industrial metals. And, you know, what, what does this mean? Yeah, exactly. So last week, we, we talked about the liquidity conditions really deteriorating. So we talked about M2. We talked about the size of the Fed's balance sheet as yeah. a percent of GDP. And this week, we look at how does all of that translate into consumption at the price that the consumer or companies ultimately pay uh, for those commodities and resources. So what we've seen really in, in, in June was that commodities at large, you look at things like the Bloomberg Commodity Index, you look at yep. crude oil, you look at aluminum and copper on slide number five and four, those prices have really deflated by a great degree. So one can make the case that because the Fed and um, monetary policymakers globally are decreasing the amount of liquidity in the system that leads to demand destruction that leads to less industrial activity that leads to less consumer spending appetite all of that feeds ultimately into the price of commodities into the things that get consumed so right. the question we have to ask is is that ultimately just a temporary sell-off or will uh 
those effects uh, lead to more prolonged price pressures. So one of the things that we can look at is we have basically seen a recessionary condition coming out of China. And China over the last decades, has uh, the country at large has driven the amount of copper that gets consumed. So one of the indicators we turn to is the Chinese credit impulse. The Chinese credit impulse is just a measure of what does Chinese economic activity um, look right now. And there is a traditional lead lag relationship where the credit impulse picks up first and ultimately copper follows that credit impulse. So as China is reopening its economy, as China is reopening ports, is increasing its economic activity and putting fiscal stimulus into the economy ahead of the uh, Politburo meeting in November, where she is expected to get reappointed. Um, As all of that is happening, we may see that affect copper demand in a positive form on the back of this sell-off. So we know that structurally speaking, supply remains tight. And putting that into the context of the current sell-off, I think, is most valuable. Just a note for our listeners, the reason why copper is such an industrial metal is it's used in the wires when you're building, um, you know, the, the copper wires for transmission of electricity. And also it's, it's used for pipes as well. So when you're building stuff, that's kind of how copper is the barometer of you know, a, a growing, I guess, you know, economy, et cetera, right? Yeah, and Paul, and Paul then we think of things like the global move towards uh, green and renewables, and right. that ultimately increases uh, the amount of copper that's needed. So if all of these initiatives um, are going to turn into reality or at an increasing pace at least, then copper demand secularly is going to increase. You just think of things like carbon capture and then right. uh, replacing fossils with some form of renewable source of energy. All of that is driving copper demand while the world has really underinvested in copper supply over the last seven years to a decade. Yeah, I think uh, Chile is one of the, the biggest copper producers in the world, if I'm not mistaken. That's exactly it. And one has to wonder as resources so you really have to look at this from multiple angles and one angle to look at uh, at this is okay you have commodity exporters of certain commodities you have commodity importer importers right. of certain commodities so chile might be exporting a lot of copper in the same uh, at the same time though they need uh resources such as the grains and as yeah. Uh, the world becomes more fractured, we have to turn to emerging markets and ask the question, will copper supply be threatened by the fact that uh, the price of resources of different forms is on the rise? And what is that ultimately going to mean for the demands of the population in those countries? Are they going to weaponize? I'm not saying they will, but (laughs) is there a potential for them to weaponize certain resources as they strive to get more um, grains as they want to be well supplied with the necessities that the population needs. So emerging markets remain an extremely interesting place in the midst of this all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, uh, 
yeah, it, it's it's so interesting too because, like you said, it's the end of the quarter is uh, this week. So next week's episode, I think, is going to be even more exciting because all of these things are going to start playing out, right? All of our questions. Yeah, and Let's and see. speaking yep. of quarter end and month end, there was actually a really interesting uh, tweet by Gavin Baker, and mm-hmm. he mentioned uh, that there's a real potential for a lot of funds unloading uh, energy and sort of non-ESG exposure ahead of uh, quarter end, ahead of all the filings that these funds put out in order to be ESG compliant, only to reload those exposures <laughs> next month. So it's, it's, right. it's really, um, I'm, I'm at a loss of words almost <laughs> to, to, to see yeah. that. Uh, but yeah, it's certainly ironic, uh, at best. <laughs> and, well, in the end, yeah. in the end, funds are in the, in the end, the funds are there to, uh, produce returns for their shareholders. And I'm sure that the smart ones will follow that. I yeah. would hope. So. I mean, that, that would, but, you know, that's exactly what you would hope as an allocator. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And you know what? The people that don't, you know, the shareholders are not going to, you know, refund the next quarter. Let's move on to uh, topic number two, the Fed dilemma. Uh, Our president of Blue Line Futures spoke about this at length last week. Um, Jerome Powell said, please don't compare me to uh, Paul Volcker, the Fed chair in the 70s when we experienced inflation levels that are uh, similar, you know, but there's, there's a couple different things that are this time around, you know, uh, our GDP, our public debt as a percentage of GDP is much different than the 70s. And, you know, it, it's uncharted territory. Is that is that fair to say? Is, is that, that is exactly at? fair to say? Yeah. I think that we are in a global experiment as far as central <laughs> bank policy goes. Uh, I mean, I wrote in the writing in the article from yesterday, I wrote that uh, MMT theorists or ultimately have fewer and fewer answers. As right. we see the debt pile grow, as we see inflation ultimately, and the associated lack of ability central banks have to react uh, to that inflation because yeah. that is so high. I mean, we talked about yeah. this last week, yep. and then we compare like um, uh, Bill Baruch was, was talking about that last week, not being compared to uh, Paul Volcker, Jay Powell, that yep. is, because yep. we look back in history and we have to come to the conclusion that we are right now facing a total public debt as a percent of GDP at 124%. That is in the U.S. There are countries that are much above that level. And, and that, was on, that was on slide eight. I just want to point that out to our that, listeners. That's exactly, right? yeah. Yep. It's, okay. it's on slide eight. Yep. And then we go back in history and compare that to that period when Paul Volcker was fighting inflation and we had total public debt as a percent of GDP levels that were sub 40%. So that's wow. vastly different. And that ultimately constrains monetary policymakers from their ability to fight inflation. And if the feds and central banks goals are that they want to retain the treasury's ability to finance itself, to fund all different sorts of fiscal initiatives, including social security, the military, all other stuff, if that's their goal, then they are vastly constrained from hiking rates to a substantial degree. And that may ultimately force them to pivot at a much sooner uh, point in time than anyone might be thinking right now, given right. the rhetoric that we have seen out of the FOMC. Yeah, it, it's, 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 yeah, I mean, where's the breaking point, right? 
you know what what's I, as I see here on slide nine, it's predicted the uh, the, the public. The, I'm sorry, the federal debt held by the public as a percentage of GDP could go to 180 percent by 2052. And again, that's on slide nine. That's what the Congressional Budget Office is projecting. So we again compare that with levels seen back in the 1970s and 1980s. And at that point, we were not at unprecedented levels right. in any way. But right now uh, that we are facing not only the fact that we have had massive fiscal outlays and lost on the fiscal side that got passed see, last year. I mean, those projects that uh, projects are going to be financed this year, next year and the years beyond. And then you have the additional demographic headwinds of an aging population, not only in the U.S., but globally. Uh, right. in the developed world. And then you ultimately have, as a result, uh, the projection by the CBO that public debt or projected federal debt held by the public as a percent of GDP expected to increase from sub 100% right now to 180% by 2052. Right. And then, you know, it, it going forward, you know, as as this topic that we're speaking about, hey, how do we pay this? And I, I do see on slide number 10, uh, the tax receipts. You know, if, if things are going to get a little tighter for everybody and you're raising interest rates and people are saving less or they're, you know, they're, they're being charged more, you know, how does that affect the Federal Reserve's decisions? Yeah, so ultimately the, the fiscal's ability to finance itself depends on how much revenue does the government have Versus how much costs do they have? I mean, it's it's like a company that you run, except that it's sure. your government who runs it. And right. uh, so we have tax receipts that have not rolled over. I mean, that data point is on a lag, and we yet to get the data points for April, May, June, uh, and we'll we'll get more info as we go on in time. But what we have seen historically speaking during recessionary type of periods is that tax receipts have, of course, they decrease because the consumer is suddenly saying, I don't want to spend as much. The, the right. tax that's on these goods ultimately does not get received by the government. People just have a much lesser ability to put money into the economy. And as tax receipts are expected to roll over, as inflation is eating into the consumer's pockets, that fiscal household will face increased headwinds. And that will ultimately also play into the calculus that the Fed does, because if, again, if their job is to retain liquidity for the treasury to finance the government, right. then they need to take that into consideration because otherwise they're going to blow up um, the, the, the fiscal side. And that would be extremely detrimental. So yeah. without being yeah. too gloomy and doomy, which we've been on today's <laughs> podcast, quite frankly, we just want to speak to the data. And I think one of the goals that we've had from the beginning is just point to what the data says and ultimately form a narrative around that data uh, series uh, on multiple fronts. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to continue to be extremely interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's the best part of the markets, in my opinion. That's why I got into finance. It's a uh, it's a 24 hour job and it's a global uh, it's a global news cycle, you know, at this point. But, um, you know, it's, it's extremely interesting and it, we all live in it. That's what a lot of people need to understand. You know, these things are important, you know, to the everyday person. You know, that's what makes it so exciting. It's ever evolving. <laughs> 
and it never stops. So it that's what stops. has you come back to markets each day. No single race, exactly the same, but as um, market forecasters or even market historians like to say, things don't exactly repeat, but they rhyme in some form. I like that. I like that. Let's uh, let's close out the show with slides 11 and 12. Uh, this is a new one for me, Sri Lanka. I have not been there before. I don't know if you have. I've not been to Sri Lanka, no. <laughs> but I have been to uh, Brazil, which I, I see that you're mentioning the BRICS. And why are we putting all of those together? And this is something we talked about in the last episode of the CDS swaps. It is a type of insurance that people make bets on to protect themselves from uh, the risk of losing their money on a bond. Exactly. So on slide 11 or 12, we point yep. to Brazil and Argentina. And that dynamic is not only playing out with these two countries, but similar to Argentina, where the five-year CDS is really blowing up to the upside. I mean, um, yeah. right now it's around 10%. Uh, the same dynamics playing out with Lebanon and also Sri Lanka. And that just speaks to the fact that we are seeing increased stress that's put on these emerging markets because they finance themselves, which with a currency they don't control. So I, Sri Lanka uh, takes out debt denominated in dollars, denominated in euros, as the yeah. Sri Lankan economy weakens and the country does not have the same ability to finance itself, they still need to service that uh, liability in the different currency they don't control. So at that point, it gets extremely worrisome for some of these governments and their ability to not only uh, stay viable economically, but also from a social perspective. And I, as, yeah. I want to pause you for a second because we, we spoke about this. I don't know if we spoke about it privately, but the, the biggest difference though between this and you know the European crisis that we saw with Greece and Italy is that that's not happening in Europe right now. This is happening in the emerging economies. So that's, I think that's something to note, right? That is something to note. It's in countries that may have a constrained ability to import resources at a cost that they can afford. So gotcha. what we have seen that's in- the difference. That makes sense. Okay. Exactly. So one of the themes that I thought of and I've been writing about in the top things to watch is that the West and the developed world is ultimately gonna or most likely uh, those countries <laughs> will continue to have the ability to finance the pricier commodities. But right. what happens in the process is they export inflation at the higher price of these commodities to countries who don't have the ability to gotcha. continue finance uh, the, the, not only a fiscal household, but the population at large. So emerging markets are just this extremely interesting sort of conundrum at this point where some countries, depending on what com commodities they import and what commodities they export, will face extreme headwinds. Uh, and that is pretty much taking place uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt at this point. I mean, yeah. if we turn to the five-year CDS of Argentina, yeah. that's setting uh, highs at 10% right now. So uh, that insurance is getting extremely expensive. And that just points to the fact that market participants and people taking out that insurance increasingly believe that Argentina may default. 
And right. that same thing is taking place in Sri Lanka. That same thing is taking place in the uh, Lebanon right now. And that is expected to take place in a lot of other countries that will have or that will face constraints as far as importing commodities at a higher price goes. And one of the dynamics that we're seeing in the context of a more fractured world and the context of a more multipolar world is you see the BRICS alliance, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Yeah. Those countries are basically forming what may be seen as a separate alliance to what we understand as a world led by the U.S. And what their focus is really build an alliance that assures some of these countries, some of those countries' ability to continue import uh, commodities at a reasonable price. So if China or Russia um, is able to give these countries guarantees, then that is ultimately going to lead to a more fractured system globally. What's that going to mean for commodities is that things are going to be less certain. There's going to be more uncertainty. I think that's ultimately the bottom line of this. You know, I, I have a feeling that the, the phone is ringing off the hook at the IMF. <laughs> yeah, that, that is certainly the case. And then there's also one really interesting dynamic thing out, not only because there used to be the IMF as the most senior lender of right. these um, uh, of, of that debt. But then you have right now a dynamic playing out where China is increasingly playing the role of, that the IMF used to oh, have with some of these countries. Okay. So. And the one major difference between the IMF and China is the degree of um, of how opaque things are when you have a country who doesn't want to disclose what exactly they hold and what exactly the terms are. I, in fact, listened to an Odd Lots podcast with Tracy Alloway and Joe Weisenthal, um, and there was a former Elliott management uh, PM on the podcast, and he was talking about the fact that China, as one of the most senior lenders in the in that case, is is ultimately leading to an extremely interesting dynamic where things right. are not nearly as clear or as certain as they used to be. And I'm assuming that you know it, it's like if you want to borrow money somebody from somebody, you have to play nice with them, which you know plays into a whole another whole another topic that unfortunately we don't have time for today. But um, yeah, is there is there anything else that you'd, you'd like to close with? I, I I think we killed it today for sure. I think we had an extremely interesting episode covering a lot of things. I mean, we went from uh, commodities and this sell-off we saw in June to a fractured of more multipolar worlds potentially, yeah. and and so yeah, we covered a lot of ground. And as always, it's been a pleasure. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, listeners, I would like to just repeat that our chart book is available in the description of the podcast on bluelinefutures.com, as well as attached to the email sent to clients every Sunday. And if you're not a client, please reach out to info at bluelinefutures.com for a free trial. This has been episode four of Macro Corner presented by Blue Line Futures. I am Paul Wankmuller, your host, my guest, Giannis Mindell. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Paul. Have a good one. You too. All opinions expressed by the program participants are their own and do not reflect those of Blue Line Futures LLC or their affiliates. The content is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as trading advice. Futures trading involves a substantial risk of loss and may not be suitable for all investors. Therefore, carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for your financial condition.